0: In a dusty box, in the basement of the Oxford University Press, linguist, lexicographer and Oxford professor Sarah Ogilvie discovered a black book tied with a cream ribbon. It belonged to Sir James Murray, who became the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary in 1858, and inside the book were the names of thousands of people from around the world, including New Zealand, who sent him slips of paper with word suggestions for the dictionary. Well, Sarah spent eight years tracking down the contributors, including a Kiwi fraudster, a few murderers, and even one cannibal. And her new book is called The Dictionary People, the unsung heroes who created the Oxford English Dictionary. Professor Sarah Ogilvie joins me now. Hi.
1: Hello, Jesse. It's great to be with you.
0: And I can just see the movie version of that moment when you discovered that book, Overlooked for 80-odd Years. The music builds, the shaft of light shines down. What was that moment like as you remember it?
1: I must say it it was a special moment for me. It was one of those moments that goes in slow motion because <laughs> I had been an an editor on the Oxford English Dictionary and for many years I had wondered who all the people were around the world who in the 19th century answered a call from Oxford to read their local books and send in their local words on little slips of four by six inch paper huh. and we've, we've we've always thought that there were several hundred but we've never known exactly who those people were and so when I saw this address book I suddenly realized that we could finally fill that gap in our knowledge and I was very curious to find out as much as I could about each of of them
0: yeah, that's incredible. um c- can you take us back to eighteen fifty seven What was the thinking behind the creation of that first oed
1: when they when these three men first came up with the idea of creating a dictionary with every word in the eng- English language in it, they wanted to do it in a descriptive way. So rather than Samuel Johnson's dictionary, which had come out a hundred years previously. Mm-hmm which was quite a prescriptive dictionary, these these men wanted to create a dictionary that was based on how people were actually using language. And they realized that to, to do that, they needed examples, written, published examples of how words were used in a written source. And they also were smart enough to realize that a small group of men in Oxford or in London couldn't do that alone. So they decided to crowdsource it. And and as I said, to ask people around the world to send in their local words. And this was a radical idea at the time. They had no idea whether this would be a success or not. But in fact, so many people sent in slips with their local words on, on them. That Royal Mail had to put a red pillar box outside the house of <laughs> James Murray just to cope with all the post. And that and that post box is still there.
0: Wow. What what was required for an entry?
1: Basically, you needed to show how it was used in a written source. So when you Found a word in a book which you thought should be in the dictionary. You copied out that exact citation on this little slip of paper with the date of the book, the author, the title, and the page number, sent that in to Murray, and then Murray sorted all of these slips and then used those slips of paper to write the definitions of the words. And it was really remarkable that so many people outside of Britain did that so that 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 first first edition of the dictionary which started in 1858 and they thought it might take two years then they thought it might take 10 and it ended up taking 70 years and finally finished in 1928 but if you look at that first edition it's the most incredible collection of words from all around the world from new zealand australia south africa Canada, a lot of American words. And even when I went through the address books, I even found people living outside of the British Empire, people were sending in words, English words, um, or foreign words used in an English example, they were sending them in from Japan, from South America, from Africa, it really was a global project.
0: Yeah, and the English language is such a hodgepodge of words borrowed or butchered from other languages, and that might be a pretty good way of describing the contributors as well to this dictionary project, who are a bit of a hodgepodge by the looks of things.
1: It's so true, Jessie. Yes, yeah, they're really colourful, eccentric, um, but captivating people, and that's why it took me... 8 years and a group of students helped me at the Univ at Stanford University and together we we trawled through censuses through marriage registers death certificates anything that we could find to try and find out who they were and it was remarkable that some of these people really devoted their every day month and year to this process so the top contributor sent in 165,000 slips the next top contributor 151,000 so we we are talking very obsessed and devoted people so it's so great to finally shine a light on them and give them credit for their for their work
0: yeah interesting you mentioned those top contributors i think the top 4 all shared connections with psychiatric hospitals what do you make of that
1: they did. And well, in the British census in uh, 1871, they added an extra column where they marked whether someone was what was called then um, deaf, dumb, blind or a lunatic. And uh-huh. so some of my people did have lunatic in that column. And I can only put it down to the fact that they were probably neurodiverse and that was judged then as a mental Ill- illness yeah. Now we we would just think that these people were geniuses.
0: And by the way, as you were gathering information on these people and quietly working away over eight years, did you ever feel like a kindred spirit to James Murray?
1: Oh, uh, well, certainly to... The, I, I definitely shared the same obsessive streak <laughs> as the dictionary people, for sure. Because, you know, just to try and... Um, I was quite um, obsessed with finding out as much as I could about them for sure, yeah, yeah.
0: And, and looking through this list, I mean this is this was the Victorian era when women had very few rights. I mean legally, I think they were still the property of men, and yet women played a really big part in the creation of this first edition.
1: They really did. There were so many women listed in Murray's address book, and when you look through, there were about four hundred women and many of them. As you say, weren't given the same opportunities for education as men in that day. And I think this was a great opportunity for them to use their brains and their intellects and to be part of a project attached to a prestigious university and a whole world that was otherwise denied to them. And in fact, one of the revelations of this whole project, and which comes through strongly in the book, is that. This was not a project of the scholarly elites as we might have expected. This was actually a project. Most of these dictionary people were amateurs. They were autodidacts. Many of them left school at 14 or 15. And James Murray himself, the chief editor, left school at 14 and he taught himself 25 languages and that's really typical of a lot of these people i think that the success of the project was because james murray could relate to these dictionary people and he corresponded with them and he he was one of them really and he was never really accepted within oxford within the the university he was an outsider, just like many of these people. And in fact, there's a whole chapter in in the book called O for Outsiders, where I talk about many of those. Yeah.
0: Actually, the period of the Oxford's English Dictionary coincides with, with quite a significant period in the rights, legal rights and social rights of women. Do you think that's coincidence?
1: Oh that's such a great question and I do think that this was a period when women as you say were denied access to education but were um but through a project such as this they were given an opportunity to use their brains and their intellects so we have uh, I've got a whole chapter on the women who contributed to the OED, from a fantastic Egyptologist called Margaret Murray, to an astronomer called Elizabeth Brown, to many spinsters who lived quite lonely lives in the countryside of of England, but read their local books and sent in their local words. And this was a great chance for them to be part of a project and a whole world that they were otherwise denied from.
0: Yeah, and speaking of that battle for rights, tell me about Catherine Osler because she was right in the thick of it.
1: She was. She was a suffragist who who grew up with very radical parents and in her own adulthood, she would gather women in her house and she would go out marching. Uh, She was a great activist and a great... um, radical um, role role model for w- women in the late 19th century and she read a lot of books and sent in a lot of words for the dictionary so she's definitely one of one of my favorite women in the book
0: yeah just the word, looking at the words themselves they sell they tell such a story emancipatrice uh, unfeminineness equal writer Um, each of those words seems to have sex war, uh, masculinists, each of those words feel like they would have a whole sociological essay behind them.
1: Absolutely. That's so true. Uh,
0: I'm talking to Professor Sarah Ogilvie. Uh, Her book is called The Dictionary People, The Unsung Heroes Who Created the Oxford English Dictionary. And yes, there are, of course, 26 chapters, each starting with a letter of the alphabet and b is for Best Contributor, who was he and what was his story?
1: Well, his name was Thomas Austin, and he was one of the most difficult people for me to track down. Uh, It ended up being that he was the son of um, a man who worked in in a brewery. He was always short for money. And in fact, he became quite a nuisance to James Murray because he... He used to come to Oxford pleading for money. This is the thing is most of these people, in fact, nearly nearly all of them were doing this for free. They were volunteering their their time and their work. And he, um, Thomas Austin, was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and... Yes, as I say, he used to come to the door of the scriptorium. So basically, Murray was trying to write the dictionary from inside his house, but he had 11 children and, and he had all these slips and books hanging around the house. And his wife said, James, you have to get out of the house. So he built this uh, shed in in the back garden, which he called the scriptorium. So Thomas Austin used to come to the door of the scriptorium and plead for money, and became quite a quite a nuisance to Murray.
0: Uh, C is for cannibal. M is for murderers. Were word nerds a bit racier back in the day, Sarah?
1: They must have been. Yes, there are three murderers. So um, many of your listeners may have read a book by Simon Winchester about twenty years ago yeah. called The Surgeon. about one of those murderers. So yeah, I was really surprised to to discover that there were actually three. And yeah, so yes, they're a very colourful lot.
0: And I'm pleased to say that N, the chapter N, is for New Zealanders. We had our fair share of colourful characters represented.
1: You sure do. And I mean, one of the most remarkable findings is that the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary had thousands of New Zealand words and Maori words and it turns out that they were sent in from a few key peoples especially down in Dunedin. Um, Dr Thomas Hocken who was a physician with New Zealand's largest private book collection he and another man called Frederick Revens Chapman and Chapman was a specialist in botany and Maori culture and he also became the first Supreme Court judge to have been born in New New Zealand. And those two men are responsible for sending in hundreds and hundreds of New Zealand words, most of them for Dr. Hocken came from his private book collection, which, of course, then formed the wonderful Hocken Library at the University of Dunedin. Dunedin, but there were two sisters living in Wellington that I'd love to know more more about. Yeah. Um, one of them was a poet called Mary Colborne Veal and her sister Gertrude. They sent in a lot of New Zealand words. Huh. And then, there was, yeah, so I don't know whether any of your listeners might know more about them, but that, that would be great to find out more about them. And then there was another man called Edward Tregear, who specialized in Maori language and he actually wrote a dictionary of Maori and Polynesian. It 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 was a comparative dictionary and he sent 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 in a lot of Maori words. So there was a there was quite a hub of dictionary people in Wellington and in Dun, Dunedin. And then also another missionary who lived in the, is it called Thames or Thames? goldfield
0: tims Th- Th- is right and i and i see cardon valley which is very well known to uh, to north island holiday makers that gets mentioned as well
1: yes yes well that gen- gentleman living there um uh reverend cook actually um didn't read new new zealand books so even though he was living in new zealand he sent in words from british british books
0: um sadly, Murray never lived to see his projects complete. Do you happen to know the last word that he he added to the dictionary?
1: We do, actually. The last slip that has his writing on it is for the word twilight. So Murray was working in the letter T. Gosh, that's very poetic, isn't it? Yeah. And so when he died in 1915, he died without knowing whether his life's work would would ever be finished or not. It was 13 years later.
0: Huh. And after his death, uh, someone else went to work on the dictionary, a certain J.R.R. Tolkien, who actually, if you looked at the photo of them side by side, you might think it was the same person.
1: That's true, with those with those beards. Yeah. Yes, Tolkien, Tolkien spent two or three years in... Um, in the early 1920s, working on the dictionary before he he moved on to the university and of course wrote his famous books. And he worked in the letter W. So um, there's there he worked hard actually on one particular word called walrus. And if you go down into that basement of OUP. That you mentioned in the introduction, you can find those slips still. All of them are stored down there. There are four million slips stored down there. And if you go to W for Walrus, then you find the writing of J.R. Tolkien. Gosh, that is so cool.
0: Yes, in fact, it was probably his wizards uh, in his books that um, owed some of their look to James Murray. Um, uh, the white bearded scholar, Um There are still dictionary people around. Sarah, your book finishes with one in Australia, your home country. And who is Mr. Chris Collier?
1: Yes. When I first started working on the dictionary, I used to open the mail. And every month, this man from Brisbane, Mr. Chris Collier, would send in a bunch of slips. And they were eccentrically wrapped in newspaper packets, in cornflake packets with bits (laughs) of dog hair stuck on them and the weird thing was that they all came from the same newspaper from the local courier mail in brisbane and i eventually got to go and meet him there and um he said oh meet me in my office which was a park behind the paddo tavern and i went into the park and there he was sitting on a park bench reading the courier mail mm-hmm. and he ended up Sending in over a hundred thousand slips from that newspaper. And when I said to him, Mr. Collier, we would love to fly you over to Oxford to show you the workings of the dictionary and for you to meet the editors. Um, and I thought that he'd jump at it, but in fact, he paused and then he said, Oh, but I couldn't possibly just imagine all the courier mails waiting for me when
0: I got back. <laughs> Oh, that is. And
1: if you do an analysis now of the number of quotes from the random courier mail in the Oxford English Dictionary, there are more quotes from that particular newspaper than there are from T.S. Eliot or or Virginia Woolf. So there's a bit of a bias, thanks to (laughs) Mr. Collier.
0: Well, James Murray wrote in 1892, he said, I'm sure that lovers of our language will not willingly let die the names of those who, from unselfish devotion and service to that language, have laboured in the cause of the dictionary. But why did it take so long for someone like you to honour the contributors?
1: Well, I think that we didn't know about these address books so no one's ever really written about the address books or used them to to find out more about these people we knew who several hundred of them were because sometimes murray would thank some people in the prefaces of the different fascicles so the dictionary didn't come out in one lot in 1928 it came out gradually so sometimes he thanked people But when you look at the people that he thanked, they were mainly the more well-known and scholars who didn't necessarily send in a lot of words, but Murray just thanked them, I think, to sort of lend to the scholarship and the sort of branding of the dictionary. So we've never really really known who the contributors were who sent in the thousands of slips. And without them, there's no way that the dictionary could have been Written, so we really have them to thank for so much, hmm.
0: Sarah. is there a role for a big, thick book of words in the world of AI and Google?
1: Oh, I think that there's always room for and a role for a dictionary what 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 your listeners may not realize is that, in fact, dictionaries are powering the back end of the internet and of many of the digital tools which we all use on our phones and on our computers and in fact that is a big money spinner for oxford university press so they are selling their dictionary data in many different formats and this kind of curated uh, structured data is really really valuable to silicon valley so for now yes dictionaries have a huge role to play and i think that they'll that will only get stronger going forward
0: Well, thank you for the time and energy you've put into honouring these people. I've been talking to uh, linguist, lexicographer, and Oxford professor Sarah Ogilvie about her new book. It's called "The Dictionary People: The Unsung Heroes Who Created the Oxford English Dictionary." Sarah, thanks so much. Good luck with the book. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye bye.